0: Welcome to a special edition of the Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm Providence managing editor Drew Griffin. In this special edition, which will be released in two parts, we're going to air our conversation with Joe Leconte. Joe's an associate professor for history at the King's College and a senior editor here at Providence. In this wide-ranging and energetic conversation, we're going to talk with Joe about Christian realism, the European Union, Brexit, domestic policy here in the United States, and Joe's own written works and writings and special projects. We hope that you enjoy this conversation with Joe LeConte. Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I am Providence Managing Editor Drew Griffin. My guest today is a very special guest to Providence, a meaningful guest to us. He is one of the founding kind of senior editors here at Providence. Uh, Joseph LeConte. He's also a, a professor, a associate professor of history at King's College, a senior fellow for Christianity and Culture at King's, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, and an author of a number of books, a couple of which I think we're going to uh, talk about today. One of his earlier books, The End of Illusions Religious Leaders Confront Hitler's Gathering Storm, and uh, his latest book, A Hobbit and a Wardrobe and a Great War, published by HarperCollins in 2017, How J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heritage heroism and the cataclysm of 1914 through 1918. So that's a a mouthful, but hopefully we'll uh, we'll cover a number of topics. Um, Joe, thank you for being on.
1: Drew, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: So I wanted to bring you on because uh, you were there at the very beginning of Providence. You were there kind of at the inception, the the first kind of little press conference, uh, uh, some of the first issues uh, that we put out. And and part of the reason why you were there at the inception is because a lot of your scholarship, a lot of your writing, a lot of uh, uh, what you've produced uh, intellectually over the years fits just seamlessly within kind of the mission of Providence. So Providence here exists to equip the American mind to engage the real world, and it does that by um, kind of bringing out the, the theme underlying the news and underlying, uh, you know, what we hear on a day-to-day basis in regards to what we call Christian realism a phrase that we did not coin, but a phrase that we have adopted and, and kind of implemented. And so I want you to, for the benefit of our listeners, for the benefit of our readers, a lot of people are probably unfamiliar with the idea of Christian realism. Maybe they've heard of realism in general. Yeah. Maybe they've heard of real politic. You know, if they're kind of uh, political historians, maybe they're, they've are they you know heard of neocons and have heard some overlap with realism and, and neocons. Uh, but help lay out for our listeners and our readers, you know, what your definition of Christian realism is, and then we'll talk a little bit about what, uh, why that matters. Yeah,
1: thanks so much, Drew, for that question. Thanks again for being. Uh, let me be here. Uh, we all owe a debt, a great intellectual debt, I think, to uh, Protestant thinkers like Reinhold Niebuhr, who was really a towering figure uh, in the 1930s and 40s, especially here in the United States, because what Niebuhr was trying to do, what he did, I think, very successfully, was to steer a course... Uh, between cynicism about politics, about the potential to bring about a just society, cynicism and utopianism and the The challenge in his day in the 1930s right up in the 1940s in, in the with the onset of the second World war. The challenge then was to uh, to steer the church and the larger culture away from utopianism because there was a lot of utopian talk in the air about uh, how do we bring about a just society? Uh, how do we think about war? How do we think about threats, international threats? And I'll read you a few lines if I could from, sure. from Niebuhr to kind of yeah. set the stage here. And he's, he's pushing back against the utopians in the church, in the Protestant uh, church in particular, uh, as the Nazis are on the march in Europe and the idea is well you know we can negotiate our way out of this diplomacy can can get us out of this and here's what he says he says we have reinterpreted the christian gospel in terms of the renaissance faith in man now and he's going after the pacifists and the mm-hmm. isolationists modern pacifism is merely a final fruit of this renaissance spirit he says and he says there's nothing in christ's own teachings to justify the position that they're taking Uh, And he goes on, the New Testament does not, in other words, envisage, envisage a simple triumph of good over evil in history. It sees human history involved in the contradictions of sin to the end. Right to the end. And if I could uh, quote, if I might, because I've been thinking about this uh, topic a lot, from The Lord of the Rings, if I could. Sure. And, and J.R. Tolkien, because it fits perfectly with this theme. From the character of Elrond, and the elves believed that evil was ended forever, and it was not so. Mm. That's Christian realism <laughs> right. from Tolkien. And from Niebuhr, we got to navigate between these two extremes of cynicism—that there's nothing we can do to make a difference. Um, forget the whole uh, liberal project. But then utopianism—that somehow we can bring about the, the kingdom of heaven on earth if, o- if only we try to be more like Jesus. If only we try harder. Right? So
0: this this argument and this this dialogue between cynicism and utopianism that you're laying out is is like heavily rooted an in, in understanding and, and a conversation in regards to like anthropology and you know uh, yeah. kind of humanistic understanding versus kind of religious understanding, Um, what is – what's ironic in a way I think is where so much of that conversation and that level of conversation is lost, so too are the distinctions that you're kind of laying out and it's easy for one – side to kind of take over the other, yes. right? You know, because there's it's like the space in yes. which the the fulcrum in which those two things would would kind of pivot or the crucible in which those two things would kind of play out and one would win and the conversation would happen, you know, is non-existent. Yes. So so what um, what do you see is is kind of a value in, in re-articulating these ideas and as a teacher, right? You're a professor, yeah. so you engage with young minds all the time in a number of different forums. You know, what do you see in the in the young generations as they're confronted with these kind of realities, yeah. and maybe they've heard some stuff about you know Marxism. Maybe they yeah. they have kind of a an idea of this uh, Christian Smith moral therapeutic deism. Just you know maybe there's a God who knows. I'm quasi religious. I believe mm. in being moral. Yeah. That's not really rooted in anything other than my kind of understanding of what yeah. I think is good or bad to me. Um, you know, with that sort of prevalent um, opinion amongst the young generation, how do you introduce this conversation? Like, how do you even begin to to flesh these out and 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 provide definitions so that you can lay out? Hey, this is the reality of what we're confronting.
1: Yeah, that's a terrific question. It's a big question. We'll try to unpack it here a little sure. bit. The point you made earlier, Drew, about uh, about an anthropology is worth just taking a, a minute with because we're sure. talking about a view of the human person. What's what's human nature like? Because if we get that wrong. Then it seems to me our politics are going to go off the rails, and and as an historian, I can I can tell you the 20th century in so many ways is bad views about human nature, which have led to bad politics, bad policies, and and have helped to fuel uh, ideologies that have almost destroyed Western civilization. I mean, Think about it, the 20th century, and that's a century that at least my students know something about. The 20th century has been called, I think, by Solzhenitsyn, was called the caveman century. So you ask the obvious question, well, how could it be that Europe, in particular, which had had attained such a level of achievement, right, cultural achievement, intellectual, scientific, economic progress, liberal democracy, how in the world could that civilization have produced two of the most destructive ideologies that the world has ever seen, communism and fascism? They came out of the West, they, they, they didn't come from some alien space invader, uh, implanted them here. They came out of our own culture. And I would argue that they came out of deeply flawed views of the human person, human capacities. So on the one hand, this is where the, the Christian realism really plays in. What the Christian realists are saying, I think it's a it's a return to a deeply biblical understanding of the human person. We realize that the fall is real. The, the fall from grace, our spiritual condition, it's so... Uh, we are so infected with sin, throughout, shot through our, our, the whole human condition with sin, that every endeavor in some ways is, is suspect. <laughs> every human endeavor is suspect. We can't get away from it. So there's that. But that, on the other hand, that should not lead us to cynicism because the Christian realist says, yes, that's all true. Sin is real. The doctrine of the fall is real. That is the tragedy of the human condition. And yet, men and women still retain the image of God. We still bear the imprint of the image of God in us. So there is a capacity, God-given, God-given capacity to at least respond to God's grace, uh, to see and discern the good and evil. We still have a conscience, as corrupted as it can be. We still have the capacity to to discern the good. If you think about it, when Jesus tells his parables— Uh, his favorite teaching tool uh, uh, in his ministry. Uh, Well, what are the parables? They're stories about the kingdom of heaven, about the good. And Jesus assumes that his listeners, they have still a capacity to figure out what the point of the story is. They still... Uh, retain some moral sensibility. The parable of the Good Samaritan would make no sense if you couldn't figure out who the Good Samaritan was. <laughs> right, right. But his listeners can. Right. They retain, or even the use of the word
0: "good." Even yeah, use yeah, of yeah, the right. word "good." Yeah.
1: Right. right. Who is good? Right. Right. So they retain that, but uh, by the grace of God, they retain a capacity to discern the good. So the Christian realist wants to build on that. And to say, we have that capacity, it has to be cultivated. We can't take it for granted, though, because it can be lost. And an entire society can begin to numb the conscience, which explains a lot about the Soviet Union and, of course, of Nazi Germany, the capacity of of men and women to to, uh, tamp down, to trample over the sense of conscience, the God-given conscience. So that recognition of the human nature, its capacity for evil... It's capacity for virtue, but always qualified. And this is where Niebuhr and the Christian realists are so helpful. We can strive for justice, we must strive for justice, but but it's going to be a relative justice, incremental justice. and it easily could be lost. And this is as, a, as a, an instructor, we can talk more about this right. as a history professor there at King's College, uh, my great sense of responsibility and uh, to pass on the best of the Western tradition. Uh, as influenced as it has been by Christianity, we've got to pass on that inheritance because it could slip away in one
0: generation. Right. So what you've said a number of things just in that answer that are going to make... People uncomfortable, and probably to uh, to whatever generation they're part of is probably going to govern how, to, how uncomfortable you made them. Yep. Uh, but even just using language of sin and and kind of ultimate fallenness, total depravity is, is kind of is the the Calvinistic uh, way of of understanding it, a Reformed Christian way of understanding it. This this idea of just innate um, uh, pervasive sin that exists in everyone—that really there there's no um, uh, even with the application of of Christ's grace, that you know, kind of the church teaches on this side of heaven, right? On this side of His return, the like Nieber said, we contend with this to the end, right? We contend yes. with this sin and this fallness to the end. You know, in our culture, there's so much that um, an understanding that views uh, individuals as kind of being. You know these blank slates, these these you know perfect innocent cultures. You see this played out a lot of times. This narrative played out a lot of times in the idea of kind of a a, of colonization or imperialism. Or you know we saw with John Allen Chow, the missionary who went to the North Sentinel Islands. You know outside of. India, this this you know tribe. He went to be a missionary to take Christianity there. He was ultimately uh, killed uh, by the tribe because they didn't want outsiders coming in. And there were all of these cries from the you know the West and the media saying, "Who is this guy?" To infect this tribe, this innocent kind of this tribe with Western ideals uh, yeah. or, or whatnot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people kind of see that it's maybe it's the outside of culture that that corrupts. And, and so the, the Western, um, the leftist kind of secular critique of, of kind of culture is that there uh, people just kind of emerge into it. And it's the, the violence of, of gun culture or whatever that turns people into into killers or whatever. And, and so, like, as you're dealing with that sort of a lack of knowledge and appreciation for the kind of innateness of sin. How do you, as as a professor, kind of communicate the reality of that to your students? I mean, how do you get them to kind of own it Uh, for those who are kind of oblivious or who who would push back or get really defensive if if you said, you know, you you are a sinner or there's sin in you, uh, even some of your best intentions can be corrupted by pride or corrupted by, you know, greed or avarice. Like, how do you kind of communicate that um, to the students and then relate it to what they see going on around them in the broader world? That's
1: a great question. It's not an easy task. Although, if you think about it, there's a wonderful line from Abraham Lincoln where he says, I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close. He said, um, the Bible says somewhere that mankind is desperately wicked. And then he goes on and says, I think I would have believed that truth without the Bible. Mm -hmm. So Lincoln living through the Civil War and seeing what men can do to other men, Um, I think with the students today, especially the ones in New York City, I mean, New York's a tough town. My college is right there in the belly of the beast. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe New York lends itself to the doctrine of sin and the fall more than some other cities. I don't know if that's true or not. We all, you know, every city has its problems.
0: I think D.C. is a close (laughs) competitor. (laughs) The fact
1: that you live in both, I don't know what that says about you. struggling between the two, between the swamp (laughs) and between the concrete jungle over there. Uh, So in some ways, it's actually... I think we do have opportunities to point out to our students, you know, the world is not as we would like it to be. I think they are really aware of that. I think the, the, the greater danger is the cynicism, uh, that they see things, that, especially the, the politics being so awash with corruption and the, the Me Too movement going after these guys, uh, men behaving badly. Uh, there's a lot of news out there and, and the way that social media just seems to drag everybody down. Everybody has clay feet, right? So I think that the greater danger is that so much are they utopian about uh, what human beings are or what we can accomplish. I think it's more the cynicism is the greater uh, kind of fear or the greater problem, potentially, at least from my vantage point. And helping to steer them between the, the utopianism and the cynicism, navigate between the two to say, wait a minute, uh, we can um, have a sense of calling coming from the faith perspective now, Christian calling, and we can bring our gifts our talents and our our abilities into the public square, and that can be a meaningful thing. We we can we can make a difference for the kingdom. Our choices can echo into eternity, and they are ultimately meaningful. I think young people, in some ways, they haven't changed because human, human nature hasn't changed. They want to give their lives to a great cause, and I think part of the role of the uh, of the of the professor of the teacher is is to disabuse them of the idea that the choices don't matter. On the one hand. Or that somehow they're going to bring about some perfect new world order <laughs> if they just try hard enough. Right. So I want to inoculate them from cynicism, away from cynicism, but also from utopianism. And that's where the Christian realism of Niebuhr and others is so helpful, because I think that's what Niebuhr really did help a whole generation to kind of grasp.
0: Well, and this generation is, I think, actively searching for some identity and some level of of meaning. Right. They yes. want they want to have consequence in their lives. If you pull Absolutely. millennials or you pull Generation Z, like that is one of the top things that you see, that Pew has has elucidated and other polls that have have come out, have talked about that there is this drive, they want their job to have meaning, they want their job and their career to have significance in their life to have, it's not just turning cogs in a factory, like they want to um, have some kind of impact, they want their free time to be, uh, you know, eco-tourism or kind of uh, mission kind of tourism, (laughs) humanitarian tourism, Uh, they want the one for one thing, even their commercial choices. if they're buying Tom's shoes, they want someone to have, you know, that purchase to have an impact yeah, in, true. in another culture. So that that level of kind of search for uh, significance is there. And what I find fascinating kind of about what, what you're saying and... and there is no other source other than kind of the Hebraic tradition, the Christian tradition, and the idea of yeah. uh, Imago Dei, right, the image of yes. God, that gives anyone any sense of inherent worth. That's exactly and meaning, right. Right? And because if you don't have that, if you don't have that tradition, and, and you see this played out in cultures that don't, and cultures that don't, uh, you know, Can't either lose it or don't it have out. it, right, it turns into a utilitarian, you either have a, some kind of value to me as a, you yes. know, a person or not, and if you don't, you're expendable, yes. you know, whether you the Jews in Nazi Germany or yes. you know, the Jews in, in Russia or uh, the Uyghurs in China, or yeah. whomever you want to pick, right? We
1: just covered the rise of the eugenics movement in my in my history class there at King's College. Right. And they're and they're astonished. The students are astonished to learn that the eugenics movement took off in the United States right. at the yeah. turn of the century. Thirty three states passing eugenic sterilization laws. By the time you get into the 1920s and early 1933, 33 states in America, the United States of America. But back to this point for a minute here, Drew, because it's so, it's so worth underscoring. Uh, the challenge, for, I think, for a lot of young people is they're, they, they're becoming turned off to politics and cynical about it in, in, because of the way – just where we are in America right now. So they, but they're still idealistic. They still want their lives to matter. And so instead of going into politics and public policy, a lot of them are going into the NGO world, the non-governmental organizations, human rights organizations, charities, because they see that as a cleaner way to bring their religious convictions, their Christian convictions, you know, into public life. A cleaner, easier way. Well, it, it may or may not be clean. There are all kinds of ethical choices you got to make as you get into the nonprofit world. So part of our task, I think, and this is why I think the magazine, why Providence is so important, it's introducing a whole generation of young people to... To this idea that politics and public policy is a noble profession, Christians can and should be engaged in it. They can bring their Christian convictions to bear into that into that public space, and they have to because if we vacate it, what are we going to get? Well, we're going to get a lot of what we got right now.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, and it's uh, what's what's fascinating. I think what they'll find a lot of students who are pursuing that pure course, you know, quote unquote, is that. Um, the problem with the NGO route oftentimes is that it's, you know, uh, is effectiveness, right? I mean, the, if you look even at the United Nations, and I'm not a major, you know, a hater of the United Nations sure, necessarily, sure. Uh, and I, I can appreciate it, but the idea that only power checks power, right? I mean, that there you can talk all you want. You can you can be a Neville Chamberlain and just talk to Hitler as, as much as you want, but ultimately Hitler and guys like him and dictators are going to do what they want to do. They're yeah. going to satisfy their own yeah. power, Uh, So whether it's Bashar al-Assad, whether it's Saddam Hussein, whether it's Vladimir Putin, uh, whether it's uh, Kim Jong-un, like these guys, they're in power for a reason, they're head of totalitarian states for a reason. And they're not going to be stopped or swayed by simply just telling them, "Hey, yes. you should stop." Yes, <laughs> like, exactly this right. Is, this is bad PR exactly for you. Right. You need to stop doing what you're doing. Like they, yes. at some point, yes, it takes the you know 101st Airborne. I mean, yes. it takes some level of power to check. Yes, uh, check exactly power.
1: right. Parchment has to be backed up with power. And right. it's a, it's, a, it's a good time for us to be talking about this because this year, 2019, well, it'll be the 100 year anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, mm. and I'm sure Providence will be looking at this issue. Sure. As we into it here in June. They signed that treaty. And of course, the League of Nations is the great creation, political creation that comes out of that, Woodrow Wilson's vision, which you could argue was a pretty utopian vision about how the global community, if we could use that phrase, is now going to organize itself. Wilson wants to get away from the idea of power politics. Uh, and instead, he wants a community of power, a league of nations, a, a new covenant, and he uses the language of covenant. There's a kind of covenantal theology right. that Wilson has. Unfortunately, it, it's kind of debased or disconnected from its its deeply biblical roots in the awareness of sin. So Wilson imagines that these communities, these countries, countries will form, you know, one great global community. They'll work together for the common good. They'll make peace the ultimate goal, and they'll talk aggressor nations out of their aggression. That's the idea. Of the League of Nations. Well, we know where that took right, us. Right. So you're right. This is an ongoing problem. It goes back to again back to the anthropology. Oh, how are human beings actually going to behave? Not not how do we want them to behave? And the 20th century is is a great kind of lesson. It seems to me for all for all of this.
0: So let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about kind of applying uh, these these principles of, of Christian realism to actual real-life events and news, right? So, you know, we're here to equip the American mind, engage the real world, so let's go out into the real world. Let's look and yeah. see what this what what this actually looks like. And, and domestically, I want to talk a little bit about um, what President Trump has done recently in terms of the um, uh, declaration of emergency, right, because of the seizing of executive power. And I bring it up because you've written – for Providence before, uh, talking about executive orders back in the, um, uh, during the Obama administration, kind of uh, raising the, being the canary in the coal mine a little (laughs) bit, you know, and saying like, look, this is, this is a, um, this is a a danger, this is an overreach of power, and um, what always you have to kind of communicate to people is it, whatever party is in power, you know, their supporters think that this overreach is great, right? Because their, their, their uh, representative, whether it's Barack Obama or now it's Donald Trump, is enacting what they believe in, you know, whether it's um, uh, you know, gay marriage or whether it's uh, social policy in the Pentagon or whether it's a declaration of emergency to uh, you know, spend $8 billion on the border to uh, put up a wall – like um, one of the beauties of the uh, American experiment is that the founders had enough of an appreciation, right, for these this Hebraic and Christian understanding of of sinfulness and yeah. fallenness, yeah. to create this government that has checks and balances, that has uh, you know power checking power, yes. and in fact has equal branches, like and and. I'm always amazed at the fact that Congress never seems to uh, fully recognize the power they have. They they have immense power uh, available to them if they ever were to use it. Um, So help, you know, lead through. There are a lot of people who are probably listening who think what Trump is doing is great, that this is a national emergency. And I, I, you know, I don't necessarily want to get into the weeds. Is is it an emergency or not? You know, how many people are crossing the border? You know, because there are are finer points there that uh, kind of how many angels fit on the head of a pin kind of points. But the... um, the use of power and kind of the um, the idea of the imperial presidency yes. and this. Talk a little bit about this and help kind of guide our leaders through maybe some of the, you know, obviously there are some attractive elements to this, but there are also some yes. dangers. So maybe yes. walk us through that if you can.
1: Yes, thank you. You're a huge question. And I'm not a political scientist. I'm an historian, but I'll do my best to kind of wade into sure. it a little bit, kind of big picture. Apply history sp- to <laughs> <it>. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, you've got... Uh, at so many levels, it's a failure of leadership, isn't it? Because Congress has the authority in terms of appropriating money. That's, this is this whole separation of powers. It's con- Congress controls the purse, right? So Congress has not been persuaded to control the purse in this way, to authorize the funds. So you had the failure of the executive branch, the, the, the Trump administration, to make the case rhetorically. To go to use the bully pulpit, to use all the resources at his disposal to make the case to the American people that this is necessary,
0: despite their best efforts, despite because they tried, because there were rallies and yeah, there
1: right. were rallies, various yeah. efforts to do that, but somehow that has been unpersuasive with the Congress. Now remember that uh, Trump did have a, a Republican-controlled Congress for the first uh, you know nearly two years of the administration, so he wasn't able to make the case with the Republican-controlled Congress about the wall within the first. That's a, a, kind of a failure of leadership at some level, it seems to me. Right, Right? So now, of course, it's much harder because you don't control both chambers. Republicans don't control both chambers. So what are you going to do, given our constitutional arrangements? Well, there are precedents for declaring emergencies, but we've never had an emergency declared in this way. Uh, Congress would not authorize the funds, and now we're declaring an emergency to get the funds. That has never been done before, as far as the uh, presidential historians and, and congressional historians tell us. So what does that mean? So it seems to me we're on very kind of shaky ground from a constitutional standpoint, historically from a constitutional standpoint. But again, the failure of leadership is not just on the executive side. The failure of leadership does seem to be on the congressional side because it does seem that we have something like a real humanitarian problem, call it a crisis call it a problem. Uh, It's certainly heart-wrenching to watch what's happening. Hundreds and thousands of people trying to cross the border illegally and women and children in particular being victimized as a result. If, If our hearts don't go out in that situation, then we don't have a heart. We don't have a pulse anymore. So it seems to me Congress, there's been a real failure of leadership in terms of Congress on the one hand saying, well, every nation has a right to defend its borders and to and to have borders, otherwise you don't really have a nation if you don't have borders that you can, that you can police. Uh, so there, there are all these issues of justice and fairness, justice and fairness uh, for the people who are trying to get into this country. But what about? Uh, the people who are on a waiting list. I think about this from my own kind of family background, my Italian uh, relatives who came into this country 1915, 1920s, 1930s, and by the way, they all came in legally. <laughs> yeah, so did mine. Yeah, so uh, I get it. yeah, and some couldn't get in, and they went to Canada. And I'm thinking of my my great old uh, uncle Vito who, who landed in Vancouver, and we only got to meet him about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, kind of accidentally in Italy. I would have loved to have gotten to know my uncle Vito if he'd been in, gotten into the country. in into America uh, legally. He couldn't. What about all those people who are waiting or playing by the rules uh, who, who desperately want to come into the United States, just as our, our friends in Latin America desperately want to come to the United States, but they're playing by the rules and they're on a waiting list. Where's the justice in that? What's the, where's the Christian sense of justice and fairness for them? You don't get just to cut the line because you, you, because you just show up at the border. So there are different principles of justice here, it seems to me, that, that are in tension. And so, again, this is, this is where the, I think the Congress has failed to exercise leadership and to make, make it clear to the American people what the different uh, principles of justice are in play. And that, to me, is just a, is a great disappointment that our congressional leaders, by and large, have not been able to kind of say, OK, here's what's at stake for the republic for our own sense of justice and fairness for the American tradition and nation of immigrants, they haven't, seems to me, laid it out clearly. There seems to be such a sort of zero-sum game with our politics right now. If anybody makes a move toward common ground, it's seen as a concession, as a fatal compromise. The other side wins. So instead of trying to solve this problem, or at least to alleviate it, it seems to be, partisan, bickering, zero-sum game. And i we need some g- great Christian statesmen, men and women, I think, to speak into the madness right now, and not enough of them are doing it.
0: And it seems like, to your earlier comment about cynicism and utopianism, that those those two mm. strains are still very much in, in play. Excellent but what's point. ironic, what's ironic to me wow. is that um, the, uh, the political positions that kind of are arguing those points have switched, right? So you've got uh, the... Um, uh, the uh, uh, cynics out there are the, uh, the, the right, you know, the, the kind of conservatives that are uh, right now and kind of Im- imbued by the Trump administration that say – um, you know the United States there's no hope kind of in the world why should we get involved we're not the world's policemen let's just yeah. take care of our own thing yeah, um, yeah. you know everyone's got problems Pull up the drawbridge. problems yeah. yeah right and build the wall um you know withdraw from uh, agreements and um, then you've got the left who's saying no you know there's still um, there's still that kind of utopian ideal that uh, every any time that you withdraw from these things the entire world order kind of is is uh collapsing and it's you know, we are pivoting from one point to the other back and forth and, and, and a cycle kind of through history. And it's um, – uh, but we seem to be right now in the Trump administration going uh, a little bit further than we have kind of in the past. And what yeah. I want to know is yeah. like what do you uh, – as you kind of see from a historian's perspective and you've, you've talked and you've written especially even in Providence about the foreign policy of other presidents, uh, yeah. FDR yeah. and others who have kind of engaged the world – and the miscalculations sometimes that they have made in um, some, maybe giving leaders too much credit, it seems like, as is, is yeah. Trump wants to do. It's like he nationally is is very cynical, but he's very optimistic and very, <laughs> you know, when it comes to world leaders or dictators, you know, he seems to really give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, uh, yeah. Vladimir Putin says he doesn't do something, he didn't do it. Uh, Kim Jong-un is a good guy and a nice leader and a good friend and, and kind of language that is hard, to figure, uh, out hard the to figure out. You know when you um, yeah. when you're trying to discern yeah. where exactly he's going. Um, almost, so I mean, tr- try and relate this yeah. this moment if you can, kind of in the middle of it, uh, with kind of other moments in history. Yeah. Where do you see where we're at in terms of American kind terrific of foreign policy. question? Uh, Trump is hard to, to to sort out in terms of
1: his foreign policy principles, isn't he? In some ways, he's reminiscent of Franklin Roosevelt with the, with the cozying up to the. To, right. these, uh, to these dictators and all, because Franklin Roosevelt was the, was the president, liberal democratic president, served almost four terms, tried to serve four terms uh, there in the 1930s. He's the one who recognizes the Soviet Union in 1933. Gives a diplomatic recognition for the first time. And he does that in the midst of what's, what's going on in the Soviet Union, it mass purges. The, uh, really, the, uh, a man-made famine, Stalin's purges, and, a, and the seizing of property from the peasants and the murdering of those who resist. I mean, it is, it is one of the most horrendous uh, seasons uh, in, in Russian history. And it's at that moment that Franklin Roosevelt offers diplomatic recognition uh, to, uh, to Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union. Why? Because he wants to bring them into a new international order. Get them – even though the United States is not even a member of the League of Nations, he wants to bring them into a community of nations. Right. And so there's a, there's a danger there. How far are you willing to go to kind of play nice with the dictators to bring them into some new order, international order? That's what I worry about to some degree with, with Donald Trump. What is he, how far is he willing to go? We'll see. We'll have to wait and see. So, so there, there absolutely is that. The other thing, though, let's have another contrast. It's so striking, this, this administration, that there's so little talk, uh, almost no talk in any of the Trump speeches I can think of, about America's historic role in promoting its democratic ideals around the world. I, I'm talking even just soft power, diplomacy. It was Ronald Reagan – he gave that amazing speech at Westminster in the 1980s, uh, which created the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, where he, that famous line about uh, Soviet communism, Leninism is on the ash. – we're going to put it on the ash heap of history. It's in that same speech that Reagan talks about a, uh, a, a democracy agenda and America being one, one of the great leaders in the West in, in its obligation and its capacity to promote democratic ideals to elevate the, the the struggle for freedom and that gave such hope to those people behind the Iron Curtain and if you've ever met any of those folks who've come, who've come out of uh, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, they'll tell you Reagan's speeches were such a source of strength and hope to them nothing like that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. Yeah, it doesn't right. seem to occur to him and his speechwriters that this ought to be part of, of America's ongoing mission to hold up this idea of democratic ideals, government by consent of the governed, religious freedom freedom, free speech, all the things that have made America such a force for good in the world. Donald Trump seems so reluctant to even mention that even in a whisper. And that causes guys like me a a real discouragement because If America doesn't do that, who's going to? I'm not talking about sending the Marines uh, out, troops on the ground. But there are things we can do through soft power that it does not seem to occur to the Trump administration to do. And that is a problem. That's helping to create a vacuum, I think, out there in the world. And
0: I think that one of the points that you're making is this, that rhetoric and words matter. And and I think that there is – um, a real disconnect. There, a lot of times, and uh, we've talked about this in previous podcasts with other guests, of where uh, what is actually happening on the administration and kind of bureaucratic level, whether it's the State Department or the Defense Department, yeah. is one thing. And then what Trump says is kind of another. And yeah. so there's, yeah. you know, you've got Bolton and Pompeo yeah. uh, having yeah. a really hard line against North Korea. That's Trump true. goes over there and says, oh, he's my friend. He's a good leader. He's doing, he's doing the best he can. We love each you know? other. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> We're sending letters back and forth through the mail, you know, boxes Valentine's of chocolates. Day yeah, every right. Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so um you know there's this d- disconnect uh, kind of between what's really happening yeah. and kind of what Trump says and what I find really troubling about this is that sometimes even like uh, it's not virtue signaling to me to sometimes uh, uh, give a voice to a virtuous thought and virtuous ideas. And, you know, there's a lot of cynicism now who would say that well, if Obama says it or, or Hillary Clinton said it, I mean, they're just virtue signaling. They don't really believe it. But words yeah. matter. And, yeah. and that, yeah. that kind of consistency and that long string, string that you're uh, talking yes. about of kind of the, the presidential rhetoric yes. that is, is going out into the airwaves of the world – that uh, kind of uh, describing America's role and and locating that role in a larger yes. kind of struggle and merida- meta narrative to freedom, exactly. Trump comes in as highly critical of the United yes. States. He's more critical of the United States than a lot of our like you know uh, enemies, and yeah. uh, basically the whole thing is broken and it's a disaster. Yeah. His his inaugural address you know was this you know we're living in this world's a major disaster, but I'm here to clean <laughs> it up basically was his was his argument, right. and uh, so yeah, it's difficult for me to see whether or not he he recognizes that. The, the role of presidential rhetoric and the value of it and it's it's also ironic yeah. because so often on the left we see this of where there's there's not a distinction uh, between the the use of power so you know, you're going to critique um, nuclear weapons you're gonna critique the US's uh, possession of nuclear weapons yeah. or a nuclear arsenal and you know we're immoral because we're the only ones who have ever used it yeah. even though we used it to stop a you know horrific uh, war. Uh, and yet we have this massive arsenal, and yet yeah. the United States' arsenal has often been used and is is used as as a shield. It's it's a yes. defensive mechanism. It's not we're not aggressive. We're not yes. you know employing these weapons to extend our own empire. We're actually providing yeah. uh, you know protection to exactly Europe right. and protection to much of the world. Exactly Whereas right. other powers out there that we are trying to check, whether it's North Korea yeah. or Iran or, or Russia. Yeah. Don't have the same—or China—don't have the same, you know, interest. (laughs) They don't have the same have no interest in protecting anyone. They just want to extend their own
1: power. Precisely. Let me pick up that point, if I could. It's a great point you're making. Think about uh, how Trump has approached, for example, the organization of NATO the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, founded and funded by the United States since the late 1940s in, in the throes of the Cold War. The most successful political-military alliance in the history of Western civilizations. I can say that now as a as a guy who teaches that class <laughs> <laughs> at the King's College. Uh, the most successful. Um, I'm not arguing that various NATO members shouldn't pay more to be part of the club. That's fine. But, but Trump has described it only in transactional terms never that I can think of in in any of his speeches has he really acknowledged the historically important role that NATO has played in really helping to defend uh, Western Europe and Western values from its enemies. Maybe there was a nod somewhere in one of those speeches, but it Totally gets lost in the whole transactional discussion. Well, we're getting them to pay more, we're getting them to pay, and maybe we should just do away with the whole thing uh, at the end of the day. Anyway, that seems to be the kind of the mood of the Trump administration, not acknowledging Wait a minute! this organization has played a crucial role in maintaining world order. And we may get into it on in discussion, but the whole idea of the European Union It it would have been impossible without the protective military umbrella of NATO. That's how the European countries could come together in the West. Western European countries could come together and form a political and economic union. Why? Because they didn't have to invest in their militaries the way uh, that historically they have had to do. Why? Because the United States was bankrolling it and protecting all of Western Europe from the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and the shadow of Soviet military aggression. And so. those
0: aren't wasted dollars. And this is kind of the argument that's made it with South Korea as well, with maintaining a yeah. large, massive force yeah. there is that Trump has used the transactional language to say that, you know, well, we're not getting anything for this. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. not an automatic return. Mm-hmm. You know, we right. spent hundreds of millions of dollars, but nothing's coming out of it. Right. And yet it's like, well, something is coming out of it. It's, it's a lot yeah. cheaper to put 40,000 troops on a border yeah. than send 400,000 troops there to fight war. Exactly right, right and, and right. not only is it cheaper economically, it's cheaper in terms of human life. The human cost, and right. so it's it's not a you know one to one kind of you know, correlation exactly. here. It's it's exactly, um, and it it seems to that's that level of kind of nuance seems to be yeah. lost.
1: Yeah, and maybe this is where Christian realism again plays in. Right, what Trump and many of his uh, supporters seem to forget is that. Peace and stability, which we have achieved in a way that would have been unimaginable to previous generations in Southeast Asia, in Europe, the peace and stability we've ach- we have achieved, uh, is, it can be lost. It's an amazing achievement. And in large measure, we brought it about because of the exercise of American diplomatic and military power. And it's so easy to take that for granted. It's so easy to take for granted the stability, the sanity, the humanity that we enjoy day to day. But it can slip away in a generation. And anyone who studied the history of the West, particularly the history of the 20th century, ought to know that. And I w- sometimes wonder if, if the president, Donald Trump, and his allies uh, understand that. And I would put the same question to Barack Obama in the previous administration. I think it was a similar kind of amnesia, historical amnesia, but from the left, Right. Just from the left, of how easy it is to lose stability and democracy,
0: and the work that's required to maintain and it. To take it for granted, yeah. Well, I'm just so glad that there are historians out there teaching uh, the next generation <laughs> the importance <laughs> of this world uh, history. To, yeah, trying to teach, yeah. still on the payroll. <laughs> You've been listening to the first part of our two-part series with Joe LaConte, talking about Christian realism and its implications in foreign and domestic policy here in the United States. In the next episode, we'll discuss Brexit and we'll discuss Joe's own projects in his latest book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. Join us on the next Provcast for our continued conversation with Joe LeConte. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.